welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to the parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Daphna Linder, who will discuss Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, or DDP. Daphna Linder is the program director for the TheraPlay Institute in Evanston, Illinois. Daphna is certified as a trainer and supervisor in both Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, or DDP, and TheraPlay. Daphna's main interest is in using attachment-based interventions to treat children with serious psychological problems caused by histories of abuse, neglect, trauma, and or multiple placements. Daphna's focus is children's development of a secure attachment with their caregivers while resolving issues in their traumatic history. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So today I'm talking with Daphna Linder. Um, she um, is a DDP trainer and consultant um, and the chapter that she wrote for Attachment Theory in Action was re- related to, to DDP, obviously. Um, she's done DDP training now in five different countries and um, she has a real interest, understanding, um, thoughts about multicultural teaching of these ideas and these concepts and where culture comes into play. So I'm hoping maybe she'll make a little bit mention of that. So thank you, Daphna, for being here. It's my distinct honor. Thanks. So let's hear a little bit about DDP and anything else you want to say about your 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 background and your journey with that. Um, okay. Yeah. DDP is Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, and it was developed by Daniel A. Hughes, who's a psychologist who lives in Maine and who was working with children with psychological problems that uh, came from being in foster care system and just having abuse and neglect, multiple placements, multiple losses. Uh, They could have been kids also from orphanages, and that a lot of their history, a lot of their story is the theme that they get cut off from their um, their biologic homes, there's no history, nobody knows the continuity of their life or what happened to them, nobody can bear witness to what happened to them on the, on the most basic level, and so he was trying to do his own um, interventions based on what he learned in psychology school, and they just didn't work, so he delved into it and developed a, th- a whole practice, which I was really fortunate to um, meet him at a time when he was just emerging with consolidating DDP. And so I feel like I also was, to some extent, um, a contributor to the conceptualization of DDP. Um, and ever since then, um, have been uh, practicing this this modality, which is, I think, that the, this is a modality that's based a lot on being able to read a person's nonverbal communication. So children who were abused, neglected, and don't have um, this continuity of their narrative, they speak through their nonverbals. And therapists, as far as I have seen out there in the world, we're not taught to respond to the nonverbals in school. Uh, We are very much verbally focused and um, focused on people being able to express themselves by answering questions or by putting together a coherent psychological narrative like that's like chronologic. 
well, these kids don't have that. And so, so much of the time, um, it fails when it like literally is like a lead balloon when you encounter these kids. So, um, one of the things DDP does is relies on the therapist's ability to read the child um, through their communication that aren't used through words. Um, and I think that maybe one, that's one of the things that appeals to me the most because I am not a verbal person. I feel like I developed in a way where my inner life wasn't seen on the outside as far as because I couldn't express it. I didn't even know it was possible or allowed to express it. And I feel like had somebody seen me from the outside and said, Hey, you're trying to say something by your way, your body is, or by the way you're sitting or the, by the way you're holding your arms or your eyes are looking or whatever. And I'm trying to make meaning, of, and you know, if an adult had tried to make meaning of that with me, I think that would have been very much appreciated. And I would have felt more um, encouraged to like speak out more. Uh, so that's one of the facets of DDP is it's a beautiful therapy for trying to help kids to discover and help them express themselves, but without forcing them to, um, engage in this very, what I think is a very adult left brain, um, fashion as, which is always answering questions and talking and making sense, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's just one aspect of DDP, Mm -hmm. um, that I like and how I got to it. Mm-hmm. Did I continue, or what else should well, I? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that that's really interesting, because I, I think, when I think of DDP, I think helping a child create a coherent autobiographical narrative, and um, which does sort of make me think of words, and I like how you're bringing out that there's so much about, about the nonverbal part of, of DDP, too, because... Sometimes in my mind, I sort of link that more with theraplay, you know, um, since since both of us, you know, both are familiar with these models. Um, so I really like I really like how you're talking about that. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, thank you for pointing that out because that's exactly right. There's a misconception there about like there. Um, we both come from two modalities that are very similar in terms of their basis, but they do look really different on the outside. Theraplay and DDP. Theraplay is much more nonverbal than DDP. DDP is still nonverbal. Um, and the idea is the following, that I'm helping them express or develop a coherent autobiographical narrative from the fact that they'll, they'll just, you'll ask them something. Let's say I ask a kid something along the lines of, um, let me think about this. Let me think of a good example. Um, and then... We might put this on pause for your moment of <laughs> your actual Zoom. Um, oh, I'll just use this little girl. Uh, an example is a little girl who's who, who's four. She was adopted from um, China when she was one, and she's angry at her mom, her adoptive mom, who's wonderful. She's angry at her all the time. Uh, she express this little girl expresses a ton of needs, like very primary needs, like I'm cold, like she shivers. Okay. This is an example. The little girl will shiver. The mom will see that, Oh, she's cold. And so the mom will go over and give her a sweater or something like a blanket. And the girl will say, no, I don't want that. And it will be this really rejecting whiny voice. And the mom will say, well, I saw you were shivering. So and the girl will like push her mama, push the blanket off, but then continue to shiver. So in our 
in one, this is how it actually happened in therapy. And she's, and I said, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that you are cold, but when your mom offers you the, the blanket, uh, you feel, you feel like that doesn't help you. It's not, it's, it's, it, you don't want her to help you or it's not helping you. You can't help, you can't take that blanket. Wow, golly jeepers. Then that means that you're cold and that nobody can help you. Gosh, wait a minute. That must be, that must be really kind of hard. And I'm doing that. Nobody put, she didn't say that put this conflict in front of us verbally, but she literally put it out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's asking, make something of this, make sense of this. Why am I like this? Why do I literally shudder and have chills down my, my arm and have my loving mom, who's literally the most, uh, you know, wonderful adoptive mom you could ever construct. If you could, you know, create her out of whole cloth, you would cut her out this woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. She's does it in the most loving way. And then this child uh, is, is, so, is so hurt inside and so blocked inside that she is able to reject this loving mom who is giving her what she ostensibly wants. So my job is to make sense of that by bringing it out. Now, the way, though, if you heard in my tone of voice, you have to do it in this really um, affectively very rich, um, curious tone of voice that is not a direct question to her, but more so just like um, an emerging thought or realization that I have that makes me feel like, uh, makes the child feel like, wait, what is what is this Daphna person, what is she up to? What's bubbling in her mind? And together I share, because of that um, enthusiasm in my voice, the girl is like attending to me because she's like, what, what's going on with you, Daphna? Why are you so curious? Why are you so excited about this? And then when I got her attention, I could look back at her because I had to shift my focus away from her so she wouldn't feel I was, like, asking her or demanding an answer. Why do you do this? Um, and then I could look back at her, and she, we're looking in each other's eyes and say, wait a minute, that is so, it must be so hard if that's, the, if that's how it is for you. And then she looked down as though she was, like, looking a bit sad and ashamed, and I said, oh, oh, yeah, which... To me, I'm conveying something like, I, I got it right, didn't I, little little girl? Um, this this uh, this touched you in some way. My expression of this of this um, you know existential dilemma that you're in, and from there, because she felt sad, I could say, yes, of course, that would make sense. You have a need, but you can't have any. You, it's hard for you to get um, your mom to allow your mom to help you, and that might mean, wait a minute. Well, that would be kind of lonely, wouldn't it, if you had nobody to help you even though you wanted them to? And again, that's a narrative. That's I'm developing the narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I rely exclusively on how she reacts to my statements as to whether I'm correct or not. Mm -hmm. If I'm on the right track, her voice, I mean, her body language will will show the expressions of the sadness, the loneliness, this, or, you know, I'm at, this, is what I, this is what I need. For example, when I did that, I'm in this conversation where I'm at where I was like, oh, that would be so lonely. And she like curled up even more like she was like a little um, ball mm -hmm. of a person. She almost looked like an infant in a crib. Mm -hmm. And I and I went on with that. And there was this wonderful kind of almost you can say it's an enactment, but it was in still within her window of tolerance, which is what we were very concerned about, not over 
doing the affect and not recreating a trauma trigger, but uh, because and and I didn't because she really was going into this in a in actually a good way. She was I think she was feeling like, oh yeah, somebody's finally making sense of why I'm so why am I doing this? Why am I so darn stuck and so much in pain? Why do I reject this mom? Why do I reject a mom who's so darn nice to me? Why didn't she stop being nice to me? I'm not nice to her. Mm-hmm. All that was done with her basically saying almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. So that's that's an example of building a narrative just by having um, watching her nonverbals, but the other and taking her um, what she had done like as an actual event, like mm-hmm. rejecting the blanket, mm-hmm. making sense of that. Now that definitely relies on me having this really wide knowledge, like of a generic themes of children's lives and how why a child would um have this phenomenon where they are suffering because they're cold but would reject their parent it's based on developmental trauma it's based on my knowledge of developmental trauma and that's the only reason i could guess at that so Mm -hmm. this this ddp requires in my mind a ton of knowledge of, 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 of studying, of reading, of experience, of other training about de- uh, developmental trauma. This is not something, otherwise, you know, you could go through the motions, but you don't know what to say. What right. are the themes there? Right, uh, right. So, yeah. Because you have to have, you, you really have to have a sense of what would the child's internal experience of this be. And I think the other thing that you're talking about that I think, um, sets DDP and and some of the therapies that we talk about in this book apart is a leading quality um, that that some people um, are uncomfortable with or or have been trained um, in child-centered play therapy and some other models where they feel like you must completely follow the child's lead. Um, And this is kind of a, with this kind of work, a different way of thinking and I remember one time hearing Deanne Hughes say, um, like, we have to take their hand and walk them into some of this. Like, they're not going to go into this. So there is a leading quality about DDP, which is somewhat different than the way some other therapists or clinicians are trained. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts about that. Yeah. So that's a, a definitely a question that is right out there in terms of the um, the various therapy communities. And I'm very eager to have a conversation with somebody who's kind of from the other side of this debate. Um, my my sense is is that there are populations with whom being less leading could work. But I have a feeling, I think, I assert that those populations are populations which are less damaged, that those populations are more trusting and therefore their defenses are lower or they're not as sophisticated or they're, 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 low, you know, they're not as high, um, whereas the children with whom we work, they are older and more... Uh, much more damaged and they will not go into these dangerous places without accompaniment um, and by that you know I like the, the the image of holding their hand and walking them through um, some of these places and I think that there is a 
confidence from my point of view that being um, being able to read a, per, a child's nonverbal signals and knowing or at least being able to kind of be aware of how much to proceed versus to back off and that there's a kind of give and take. You read their expressions nonverbally so that you will um, be able to titrate the amount of leading that you do based on their physiologic responses. I think that those people who are very afraid of the um, going of leading are also um, not as confident about their skills or ability, or maybe they're not aware that there is this whole access to being able to understand and read a person's body and physiology through um, uh, not through their conscious words. So I think. Um, the the thing that that concerns me a lot about that sort of you know that, that maybe we shouldn't lead or we shouldn't be putting this is a, cl- a, cl- a complaint that I have heard said that we're putting words into children's mouths is that it's like being very conservative in your intervention let's say medically where you kind of are like well i don't want to give you this really potent drug because it might have some potential side effects but the not giving something that's kind of intrusive or not intrusive but something not giving something that has quite a strong effect in terms of intervention will may cause an opposite effect of there's going to be harm done by not intervening at such a um, interventionist level. And that worries me because time is passing. Mm-hmm. These children are known to be completely resistant to therapy. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're three today, but they're going to be seven tomorrow and they will be 15 before they might come to somebody who finally is willing to, enter kind of their dark alleys with them and so much more damage has happened so i feel like there's there's no time there, i can't afford to be conservative i also don't have the time these children if you are very very kind of measured and wait for them to make clear you know verbal responses of what they are asking for or what they're ready for what that means is that will probably take three years these children don't have the money their parents don't have the wherewithal. They move from place to place, um, and I think there's so. I think there's a real danger associated with that, uh, with taking the more um, traditional conservative approach. Mm-hmm. I think when you that that that's such a good uh, way way of framing all of this. And one thing that really stood out to me that you said at the end is, you know, as time goes on, you know, there's more damage being done. And I think there's this level in DDP when you're working with a child where, um, and you are, you know, giving uh, words to their internal experience, and there's this level of relief and this burden of shame begins to lift. Like, you can, like, feel it and see it. And, you know, the idea that they could just keep carrying this and carrying this and carrying this and the defense is getting stronger and um yeah so I, I i really appreciate the discussion about that and i think it's a very important one mm-hmm. well um any other um as we wrap things up um i really like this conversation because um i think it's brought out some aspects of of DDP that we don't always talk about in this way, like, you know, we talk about pace and 
you know, the, the, the different ways that we teach it. But I, I think having some dialogue about some very specific aspects of this is, is unique and really helpful. So is there is there anything else that you would like to mention or offer before we close today? Well, sure, because, you know, I could talk about this forever. So, um, <laughs> how much time do you have? No, um, there is something that I will say about... Uh, there, one aspect of DDP that I really like is we don't try to we do we are not solution focused, and that is something that is like what what wait what because isn't that what we're doing here in therapy? No, my idea in there in DDP is that the solutions come once there is an acceptance of the person's situation and the respect of that. Now that does not mean that we don't focus, that we don't encourage as cons- we don't encourage consequences, or that there are, um, you know, that you have to just let kids do whatever they want. It has nothing to do with it. But I will give an example of a child who was just two days ago who was really furious at his mom for various reasons because he's got major trust issues and he has major reasons to be mistrusting. And one last incident that happened basically was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. And he said, don't want you to talk to me and chat with me at home as if nothing happened. I am too angry and I'm very angry that you continue to try to talk to me and talk to me about the weather and talk to me about whatever, you know, little daily um, things like, oh, did you see that on TV? Because I feel like you're ignoring the fact that I'm so angry at you that I don't want to talk to you except for anything that has to do with like logistics, like when you're picking me up or what are you having for dinner? Now he wasn't being disrespectful at home. He just was ignoring her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the therapy session, I said to, I was going to ask his mom, you know, we were going to do some, 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 some problem solving around that. And he looked at me very clearly and said, I am not going to stop being angry at her and I'm not going to talk to her about chatty things mm-hmm. and he said it in such a quick way and I said oh okay um, I'm not going to ask you to do that and he said oh I'm sorry I thought you were every other therapist I ever been to was always telling me that I should try to be different and not be so angry oh. and give my mom a chance I was like okay thanks for telling me that of course man you don't have to be sorry that's your experience how would you know what how therapists go mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, and, and so that's, that's an example that what I did with that, uh, subsequent to that, I'm not, I don't want to even necessarily get into it unless, you know, there's, I'm asking you unless there's time, but my point, my point is, is that, um, I, I'm here to accept where he's at and make sense of that mm-hmm. because I find that that actually in and of itself reduces the pain and mm-hmm. reduces the conflict between two people. Mm-hmm. That is, that's it. That's right. where the, that's where the problem solving comes after that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's almost a provocative statement to say we're not solution focused. You know, everything's about being time limited, being, you know, get this done in just a couple sessions and, you know, all of that. So yeah, that, that's a really, yeah. Good, good example. 
Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this. I have this feeling I, I am going to need to schedule another podcast with you because there's, I feel like, a lot more that we could talk about. But thank, thank you so much um, for contributing to the book um, and being willing to do that and also for talking with me today. So thanks so much. You're welcome, Karen. It is, again, my pl- always my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory. 